We are here today with Diana Cohen, who is the co-founder and CEO of Crown Affair. Crown Affair is a brand, Diana, that I look forward to using in the morning. Like when I have my no wash day and I get to use the dry shampoo, which is my holy grail dry shampoo, it brings me joy and delight to use it even beyond the functionality of the product. And I feel that that was your intention from the start. How have you been able to create that feeling in the brand and in the products? Thank you for having me today, first of all. I feel like we can end the podcast now because you just said everything that is music to my ears. Selfishly, I'm like, perfect. This is great. <laughs> Thank you. It is why I do what I do. And I'm really honored to be here. I've been following you since the beginning of your storytelling. And I feel like I reached out to you when you first started being like, Thank you for making this content because I too, I was such a brand nerd. Like I love product. I love marketing, packaging, all of this. And it's been my whole life. And when it came to starting my own brand in Crown Affair, I just wanted hair care products that I actually looked forward to using and I didn't feel shame around or disempowered. And so much of the category is about fixing, repairing, managing, taming. And all these other categories, whether it's skincare, color, even nutrition or journaling, I approach them with such a different mindset of consistency and something that I look forward to. And that was really the whole baseline of starting Crown Affair. So I'm glad that you feel that and the products are something that you look forward to using. I saw somewhere that you sometimes like to do morning pages based on The Artist's Way, which is an amazing book. And I remember thinking what I told you right before we started recording, which is, oh, her brand is her art. I see you as an artist and I see the brand as an extension of you. And I don't actually think that that is the default in the DTC world. You know, in the brand world, CPG, I think there are a range of ways you can approach brand building, but I see the intention that you put into it. So would you say that that's accurate? I feel like I'm putting words in your mouth and just being like, yeah. you're building <laughs> amazing. What do you think? And you're like, yeah, thank you. But I really do see that sort of like artistry go into it. How do you think yeah. about that? And does that resonate in terms of the creative expression? Totally. The soul of the brand is everything to me. It's not easy to make a brand. You're the first person to know that. I feel like there's two parts of the brand. There's the soul and then there's the product and the benefits. And what happens most of the time in consumer, especially like the D2C world from the last decade, is like, oh, there's a problem. Let's disrupt it. Let's give a solution. But as time goes on and there's more things out there and customers have more choice, just having a product with benefits is so table stakes. It can't be the whole thing. And you can tell the difference between the brands that also have a soul. And to me, the way I built Crown Affair with my team, with our community, is rooted in my personal rituals. And very candidly, these are things that I've been doing for the last four years now. I've worked in consumer for over a decade and came from really intense cultures of growth at all costs, throw everything at the wall. And it's really the opposite way I've been trying to build Crown Affair. And I'm very lucky to have an incredible friend group and community that is rooted in self-care and rituals. And my friend Court Roberts put together a group of us to do the artist way. I bought the artist way maybe like six or seven years ago and it was sitting on a shelf. I feel like this is a very common story. It's like you buy it and you open it and you read the first like 40 pages and then you absolutely do not follow through on the 12 weeks. <laughs> That's me at least. So she put a group of us together and it was a 12-week program together and it changed my life. And I don't write morning pages every day because it's also tough. 
but I do do it probably five out of seven mornings. And journaling is just such a huge part of what's the, uh, the Joan Didion quote. It's like, I don't know what I think until I write it down. For me, it's just such a cathartic way to slow down. And I noticed that it really paralleled a lot of the ways that I was caring for myself. Like, I remember when I studied abroad, I had like random roommates who went to totally different colleges than I did. And they always used to very lovingly make fun of me that like I would be in the bathroom and like hours taking care of myself and doing like lymphatic drainage. And like I would be in the shared communal living room stretching. And this is like my whole ethos as a human being. And the brand itself is anchored. Our motto is take your time. The brand is anchored around time. Yes, of course. There are all these things. The brand is clean. It's intentional. It's all this stuff that's product and benefits. But to me, the core pillar of the brand is around time. So I'm glad that that shines through. And I can't tell people to take their time if I'm not taking my time. So I really, it is an amazing way for me to live the brand every day. How do you stay connected to and discern the soul of the brand? The truth is that it's like the easy answer is that it's me. You know, I think a lot of like D to C again from the last decade is like, oh, wow, there's an opportunity. Let's go after this market. It might be easier in the first year or so, but then you kind of lose touch with it because it's not necessarily the person, right? And I think if you're creating something, whatever category you're in for yourself, you're never going to lose a sense of what it is because ultimately it's you. And we've all changed the last three years since, you know, the pandemic. And as I changed, I see Crown Affair evolve as well. That being said, I think it's really important to remember that so many people don't know about Crown Affair and people are encountering it and having their experiences for the first time. So I think the brand identity comes from the soul, but the applications of the brand identity need to be really strong. And how somebody experiences that on the direct channel versus maybe a retail channel like Sephora, it's almost like dialing little percentage levels as you think about someone on their journey. But yeah, I mean, it's the easy answer, but it's just, it's me. It's so my visual literacy and how I move through the world. So it's easy to not lose touch of that because I can always turn inward to my authentic voice. One thing I've observed about brands that, I think this is true of everything. I think about this as a content creator a lot where sometimes I'll say something that feels really specific to my experience, but it'll resonate so universally and so many people will say, wow, yes. And I think that the best brands have that where they're talking to a specific kind of customer, but there's also a universality there where it can appeal across demographics. And recently you shared on your Instagram stories that there was this woman who was older and she was waiting to join this crowd of her birthday party that you had at your office. Tell us about that. Oh, Barbara, sweet Barbara. So um, yes. And one of the things I'm most proud of, it was funny when I launched Crown Affair three years ago, I got like a lot of eyeballs being like, it's not a Gen Z brand. Like it's not trendy. And for me, I'm like, I want seven-year-olds to wear the scrunchie. I want 70-year-olds to use the bra. Like I just want every person to feel connected to this brand. And I think that to me really is how you build a brand over decades. And it really performs over time. And it's not just this flash in the pan, but Barbara is super cool. She lives in Greenwich Village. She's a writer and she found us originally through PR. I think it was like a Vogue story that she read about Crown Affair and the brand ethos and our and our mission really resonated with her. So she bought the set. She has like the most beautiful, just white hair. And she's like, I really just kind of lost touch of taking care of it. So she bought the set, the brush, the comb, the towel, the oil, 
bought it for her three daughters, bought it for her granddaughters. She's just so full of life. And to me, it's like, I look at her and I'm like, I hope that I like Barbara when I'm in my, I think she's in her late seventies. She was the 30th person in line for her pop-up. I think when you see like pop-ups, it's a lot of like trendy, you know, Gen Z. And I love Gen Z, by the way, like I learned so much from my team, but it's just easier for people who are like 22 to wake up and get coffee and go to a pop-up and that's their day. But if you're in your late seventies, it's like not something that you always do. So the fact that she was there, she brought her granddaughter. They waited in line until it opened. We hung out the whole morning, talked about stuff. Yeah, you know, she's just so thoughtful. And to me, that's something I'm really proud of. And it's something I want to continue to do. We have a lot of customers in their 60s, 70s, and 80s who use the product because they're women who are just looking for something that is simple. And again, changes that headspace of caring for themselves. And I don't know, I love natural hair. I love aging hair. I think demystifying hair, like hair is a thing, is like one of the coolest things. And literally like the human fur that's left on our body. Like if you think about it like that and it changes every decade. And I think when you approach it from like a more playful and curious perspective, you feel less shame about the thing because it's really natural for us to go through thinning. Any medical condition can change your hair. And unfortunately, the industry has been all about like making it look good, but not necessarily considering what it takes to go into that. And again, I think it's kind of the equivalent of like crash dieting. It's like it might work temporarily, but you really need to find a more holistic approach to caring for yourself from the inside out. And hair is so vulnerable, right? Hair is so personal. It's so vulnerable. Sometimes it's political. I remember when I was in middle school, when I was 12 years old, I just fried the hell out of my hair with a straightener because I have such, here, I'll take it down. I have like a lot of hair. So gorgeous. Uh, like impossible every single time I've ever gotten my hair cut they're like wow you have a lot of hair and it's really thick and I'm like thank you help me figure out what to do with it because then it'll just like poof out so I used to straighten it and wrestle with my hair and I would sometimes end up in tears in literal tears when I was 12 because I was like I don't have the same hair as everyone else it just won't like be tamed and I feel like what you're doing is you're celebrating ritual around hair and taking care of your hair in this beautiful intentional way and also it's us making peace with some aspect of ourselves that we may have struggled with. It's like hair and it's also so much more than hair. I think part of the reason that hair hasn't been democratized as much as skincare and color is because it's such a personal and emotional topic and it is so political. I mean, hair as a shape, hair as a part of our identities. I mean, you can recognize people based off their hair silhouettes. You know, there's like books on politicians where it's like, you know who that is based off their hair. It is such a huge part of our lives. I've always loved my hair because I had acne growing up. And to me, my hair has been my armor. It's like the final accessory before going out. It's the thing that I hid behind for a lot of years to feel confident. And also there's something really intimate about it, whether you're growing up and your mom is brushing your hair at night or you're, I don't know, somewhere and someone's braiding your hair. It's just like there's a very connected level of intimacy that I think is unlike any other category or industry. And even on the salon side, I mean, salon culture is like one of the most incredible, deep, rich histories from like early days of the barbershop to like, I mean, I've been going to my stylist for 10 years and she knows more about me than like most people do in my life because it's just a vulnerable place. I love it as a category. And I think education and demystifying hair can be so powerful because then you can choose what you want to do. I take like an 80-20 approach with care. So like 80% of the time I air dry it. I use really high quality products. And then 20% of the time I style it or use a heat tool. You know, it's it's not about perfection. It's about finding that balance. So to me, it's just been so fun. I mean, seeing people's hair legitimately change and their relationship change to it. And 
I love that you mentioned the dry shampoo because I feel like that's such like an aha moment for so many people. And I know we've seen people start using it and they're like, oh, my hair's healthier and it's growing back thicker because I'm not using like harsh aerosols or I'm not washing as frequently. And, you know, just getting people to treat their hair like the beautiful fiber that it is like if it's a beautiful silk shirt or whatever it's like you really have to care for it and I think when you have that shit like most people don't know to brush their hair at night like if you brush your hair like oh god I can't wait to brush my hair tonight like I can't wait to spend like three minutes it's just the most cathartic relaxing thing and I remember one time on a trip I went away for like a week and a half and I forgot to pack my brush and it was like so terrible my hair felt different after a week so I'm just happy that people are entering this new space and obviously I would love for people to use crown affair but the truth is I just want people to take better care of their hair whether it's what they already have like this is how this started the aha moment for me happened because it was just so obvious the disconnect between education and salon you have people going in getting their hair washed cut wet blown out really good for a couple of days and then going home and washing it and being like, why doesn't it look the same? So obviously the pandemic has been a huge catalyst for that as well, because I'll talk to women who used to get their hair blown out two times a week or whatever it was. And I think there's just been a massive behavior shift that hopefully in like 10 years, there will be a much larger movement that I think the country as a whole wakes up to what we've been doing to our hair for the last like few decades has not been stopping great. That's such a good point that we have become more cognizant of how we treat our skin and just, you know, our internal wellness with supplements or nutrition or whatever, but that hasn't yet penetrated the category of hair. Yeah. I think part of it is that we've just been shown something that's so distant from the reality of hair, how hair actually is. And, you know, whether that's Pantene commercials or Herbal Essence commercials, they're so fun. And I love all of the vintage and, you know, ads from the 70s and 80s. They're like the 90s shampoo commercials with all the lather. But those products are like filled with sulfates. Some companies get rid of sulfates, replace them with pegs. It like overstrips your hair. I think the conversations around taking care of your scalp, taking care of your hair, like the actual hair itself, like those are two different things that you need to do. And like that conversation hasn't been happening. And we are seeing like the skinification of hair. But to me, that's like one piece of it. A lot of brands exist to be like, it's all about that. But I feel like there's so many other pieces of it that are really exciting to me. And that's one part of it as well. You know what I can see you guys doing? This might be such a wild card. But if you guys had a coffee table book tracing the history of hair and how it's depicted across like centuries or something, because I feel like you have that art history background, like I can see you guys doing something like that. That could be so eye opening. That is my dream. What's so funny, I talked to our president, Elaine, who you know all the time about like, I feel like you're one of the business. I had so many ideas, like museum for hair, coffee table books, you name it. There's like 30 other ideas. And like as a founder, you just can't do it all, you know? And I think time and market is like one of the most undervalued things about a business. And she's always like, okay, Diana, you're four, you're five. We can actually execute these like ideas that you had. And that's 100% one of them. I mean, when I first started the business, I don't have them now because I just moved, but I have so many books on hair. I collect books on hair. I love reading about the history of hair. I think there's just so, I mean, the reason our hair is different textures is the same reason that our skin has different skin tones. So if you live closer to the equator, your skin tone, your melanin is darker. If you're in a space that your skin needs to be protected from the sun and it's lighter if you're further away from the equator because you don't need as much protection genetically. It's the same thing with hair. Like if you have tighter textured hair, it's because the sun was a lot harder. So it's like your hair is beautiful and strong and protecting you. And if you are further away from the equator, your hair texture is different. So thinking about it like that or thinking about hair as a part of like your narrative. I have a very good friend who's worked at Pixar for 15 
17 years. And I was chatting with him about the brand because he's just such a smart dude and I love his perspective. And he was telling me about when he was working on The Incredibles and the hair simulators for the character Violet and like how they actually had to innovate on the technology at Pixar because the sophistication level of the technology to tell the story of her hair was not there. And like that journey where she's like covering her face, which I honestly, I was doing too for a long time, covering her face and then finally pulling it back. And it seems like such a simple thing, but that's so symbolic for our journeys as as humans. And these things are really important to talk about and we don't talk about them enough. So I, I love that. And yeah, I mean, the culture again, too, of just like how hair is so mystical and like holds a lot. And I joke that you can tell, I mean, it's no longer here. It's been cut off, but I remember it was a very high stress job. And like, I could tell when I worked there based off like where it was in my hair, like the texture of it was coarser. It's almost like a tree. It's like the rings of a tree. It's like your hair has this power that it holds within it. And I love that idea. So stay tuned for a coffee table book and hair portraits. Like I love back of head portraits because it's like, the back of your head is also equally as important as your face, in my opinion. So we really exemplify your brand. And I love that. And it's inspiring me to take better care of my hair because I'm very low maintenance. Like I will do almost nothing to it because I've just kind of given up. But to this point about you kind of exemplifying the brand and the brand being an extension of you, how has that played out for you in terms of being the face of the brand? And I've noticed that you're more active on TikTok lately and I love your videos. And I every time I see them, I throw a little like your way. But what have you learned about how to show up as, I like to think of you as an evangelist because you're not making it about you. You're sort of this emissary kind of explaining the story of the brand and why this matters. What have you learned about how to do that Well, first of all, you inspire me every time I open TikTok. I'm like loving things. And I'm like, okay, you're inspiring me to post because it is a lot to do. And the truth is, is I did not. I never spoke to the camera before I started this brand. Like until the pandemic hit, you know, like a normal person, I would take photos on vacation and post them. And I was in my photos, but never spoke to camera did not start this brand as somebody who was an influencer. I think when I started the brand, I had like a couple thousand followers on Instagram. Like it was not a core part of the pitch. It was not a core part of the vision. You know, I would show up in maybe PR articles, but the brand was not about me. And to this day, I'm very proud of the brand that I've built in the sense that I do think it's much bigger than me. Like I know there are women who are shopping Sephora, Violet Gray, Goop, Moda Operandi, who do not care who I am, have no idea who I am. Like they're not shopping. They just love Crown Affair and they love the product. And it's like nice icing on the cake if they go a little bit deeper, which is how I actually always want to keep the brand, to be honest. I want the brand to be bigger than me because I do think it is. It can be limiting because humans are not scalable. So that's a huge thing. That being said, I mean, the playbook of marketing has just absolutely transformed since I started this company. It was all Instagram focused. I didn't know what TikTok was when I started the company. And I just had a lot of fun with it in terms of sharing my life. And I think it's a nice balance of hair education, lifestyle. You know, I'm not like a hair influencer. So I would just share the things that I loved around my air dry and the ritual that I have with my air dry. And that really took off on TikTok. People also love like the entrepreneur piece of it. I think a lot of people come to the brand through our mentorship program, Seedling, or somehow seeing me at a thing or whatever it is. So I do think it's It is really helpful. And in addition to enjoying doing it, it's effective, which I'm sure I'm not the first brand to say that, that like when you post it, actually, it means something. I always feel a deeper connection with brands that I either know the founder personally or just through social media. And I feel like I could DM them or that they're going to see something like 
to me, it does really make a difference. I feel so much more connected to those brands than I do some of the legacy brands of products that I still use. But I feel like I don't know how to DM this brand. You know, it just feels so big. But I, I love it. And I think I learn so much from our community. And I'm definitely a millennial. So it's been a personal journey to lean into vulnerability, lean into not being perfect, you know, looking a certain way, just being like, oh, whatever, just throw it up. And leaning into the community piece, I think we're shifting again from a place of like you share, it's more performance based in terms of like I'm sharing, but there's so much richness in the community piece and hearing people's voices. So that's been a really cool part of the TikTok and Reels and, and all of that as well. What have you learned about how to be a public facing founder on TikTok. I do feel grateful that I didn't grow up in it. I don't know if you feel that way at all. Like it feels nice to be able to come to it a little bit more formed as a human because most of what I share isn't like deeply personal. Like I'm sharing a little bit about my move journey and like my husband, but I do have a whole foundation of a life where like if I didn't post, it would impact the business, but it wouldn't actually matter. I think that's been the biggest thing for me is like, if there are days that I just don't feel like it or there's a lot going on, I don't. I wouldn't know how to answer that if I had to post every single day. It would be really tough. But I would say like showing up in a way that's inspiring to people. I think sharing things that people can take away is where I see the most success, whether that's again with like entrepreneurial lessons or things that I'm buying. Like it's so different. Like I feel like millennials who share stories, it's coming from a place of like, look at what I'm doing. And I realize that like nobody cares. I mean, maybe some people care, but like I do kind of love this whole new world. And I'm sure some younger people are listening and being like, Diana, obviously, like we're just here to help each other. But I'm going from a place of like, who am I to share to like, who am I not to share and let's help each other and really like everyone has superpowers and everybody has things that they need help with. So it's like, how do we across the board share the things that we're really good at and then ask for help and help other people? That to me is what I think is so powerful about social media. I agree with that part about being glad I didn't grow up, not even just TikTok, but sometimes I look at just how chronically online we all are. Like I remember being on MySpace way too much when I was younger. This is me being like a geriatric <laughs> Even then, that was like not unhealthy how much I was on it. But now, I don't know. It's just, it's really scary. And I'm like, when I have daughters, oh my gosh, I don't know what I'm going to do, you know? And hopeful that by the time we have children, if we have children, that there will be so many learnings, that there's like structures around this. But I mean, my whole thing, it's like, we grew up in a time where it's like, if something dramatic happened at middle school, for example, you would at least go home and like everyone went to their homes and like would have dinner and have time to process. And maybe there was like AIM or like, you get your clear phone on the landline and call people. But like there was space and time, which are the two most powerful things. And then you go back to school the next day and you don't feel great, but you're like a little, it's a little bit softer, you know? And I think the reality is like the, our software as humans, is not caught up with the software that we're using and nobody should be getting feedback in real time, whether it's positive or negative this quickly on yourself, especially as a young person, whatever your gender identity is. Obviously it's really, really bad for young women online, but yeah, I don't think it's healthy. I have no idea how to solve it because they design these things to be addictive and I'm so chronically online. So I don't, I'm not saying any of this as if I have the solution, but I think identifying the reality is probably the first step to creating structures that allow you to be a little bit less online. It is really hard though. Especially for you and I, whose businesses are online, literally online. I mean, you guys are omnichannel and are in all these wonderful retailers, but you are also direct consumer. So I once heard you talk about the balance of being versus doing. And it's also something I think about because I'm more effective when I make 
space for being and act from that place and take inspired action instead of just throwing my body at something until it gives. <laughs> what have you learned about how that looks for you on the days where you're able to find that harmony of being and doing? What does that look like for you? I love this question because it's something that is relatively new for me. I think most of my career, and it's not anybody's fault, but the reality of being a woman in business is that the world has been run by masculine energy. So I came from cultures of like bulldozing, and doing and performance and like executing. There's no stillness in that. Like if there's like a duck or a swan in the water and it's like splashing, you know, and there's something about just staying still and surrendering. And to me, letting things have the space that they need is coming from a place of feminine leadership. And I've been really lucky to have an incredible coach the last two and a half years that has completely reversed how I move through the world, how I communicate with my team, how I communicate with partners. Like it is the opposite, honestly, of everything that we've kind of been living through. It's kind of the opposite of women. I feel like a little bit just being a female leader is such a different thing. And it is all about creating that space and surrendering and taking time for it. But it is hard to do. And it, I do things like journaling and meditation. And I actually think remote work, hybrid work has been a total game changer for me as a leader, because I think about the days that I was at these startups in the office five days a week. And the truth is, is being a founder is very hard. Like you go through so many highs and lows and energy is everything. You don't even have to say anything. And I remember moments of feeling my previous founders energies as an employee, you know, and I don't know if that's always healthy. So for me, being able to show up to the team, we are hybrid, we have an office and we go in, but most of our work is done remotely and being able to show up to Zooms and be intentional about what I'm sharing and how I communicate has been so transformative. And one of my personal missions is it's not something I'm thinking about how it's perceived externally, but my dream is to really redefine female leadership post-COVID because every single one of my role models I'm sure all the, you know, air quotes, girl bosses, it was all out of masculine leadership. It's definitely been a journey and I'm lucky to have incredible mentors and women around me who anchor me in that and, and bring out the best parts of me. But it is hard to balance with like growing and building a business and finding that harmony is something that I, I strive for every single day. I love that so much. I'm really chilled. Also, I agree that lean in feminism and girl boss feminism, those were in a way product of their time, right? That's kind of what yeah. you have to do to operate in those contexts. I think sometimes at a certain cost that was not foreseeable. And I think that that kind of leadership and management and just hustle mentality of do, do, do with no space for being gives the illusion of being more effective. But sometimes it's not. Very often I find that you incur a certain debt that later has to be paid, whether it's in the form of your health or you haven't taken care of your people or something. And I have heard you allude to this in prior interviews. What are some of the lessons you've learned from working with or at some of the most well-known brands of this sort of like direct-to-consumer landscape over the last decade? Yeah, I love that. And something I say to myself all the time is like, let the silence do the work. And being silent and editing is so much harder than just like blah, 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 and feeling like you constantly have to be in motion. And I agree with you. It's one of those things like in order to beat them, you have to join them. And I think the last decade of female leadership, it's like you got to join them and then you can change it. And unfortunately, the timing was just terrible. 
Like, I don't think that those women did anything different from the men prior at Warby and Harry's and all of this. It was just the timing of it is really what the bummer is. And with the pandemic, I mean, it was tough launching a business six weeks before COVID. At the same time, I'm so deeply grateful that this is in our DNA and it's all we know. Yeah, I learned a lot. I mean, I've worked for Emily Weiss, who genuinely is probably one of the most visionary people I've ever been able to spend time and, and be around. She came from fashion totally different type of culture. I actually went to Glossier yesterday with my parents. My parents were visiting me. I went to the Miami store. I took a little selfie with my mom and dad. And, you know, they know that I I worked there and into the gloss. And it's just crazy how much she's built that business. And I feel grateful to know a lot of the early team. I've hired some of her early team now for Crown Affair. And she's the innovator. She's the first person to do any of this stuff. And, you know, sometimes when you're the first person out there, you're also the one who's taking the mistakes the first time around. But I think what they've done is just incredible. Worked for Eric Katz. She was my first like real boss at a company called Spring, which was the mobile shopping app. And she's the founder of Seed. And to me, there is nobody in this universe who is better at grassroots marketing and storytelling than Era. To me, she was always the best mentor. Learned a lot about like management pros and cons from her. Our mentorship program, Seedling, is called Seedling because Era used to call me her little seedling. I'm like her OG Seedling. So that's where the name comes from. And obviously Seed is her company. And then I worked with, you know, the founders of Away, which is very known, the culture there. But I actually very much on record, and I'd say that it was the best job I ever had. I was obsessed with my job, like the actual job itself, which was head of partnerships. And that was the job that actually changed my life. You know, working at the places prior allowed me to go into my role at Away. I was 26 when I went there. It was a very intense year. But man, most of the relationships that I made and continued, you know, I did partnership with Madewell, my contact at Violet Gray, like that all came from Away. And I think that all of these companies that I worked for, you realize that it sounds silly because they're just things, but they are a huge part of your self-identity. And Away was the first time I ever, I remember prior to working there, I bought one and I like took a photo and put it on Instagram. I would date myself. I was at like a Summit Series event, took a photo of my way back, posted on Instagram. And I never cared about my suitcase before. I'm pretty sure I was using something from like Marshall's or like on sale at Bloomingdale's. Like it wasn't part of my identity. And I, I just learned so much from those roles. I also learned a lot about partnership. I think Jen and Steph are really interesting co-founders. And learned a lot from them, you know, and, and how to build a team. And I think ultimately that was the role that I learned that consumer is not scalable as much as you want it to be. And if you move fast and break things, you're also breaking people. And now it's so out of alignment with how I moved through the world. But at the time, it felt fun and exciting and great. And after leaving away, I was really lucky to work with truly some of the most visionary people. I mean, Jeff and Andy from Harry's, I launched their women's line Flamingo honestly, the best leaders in D2C. That experience opened my eyes to how incredible a personal care business could be. It was the first company I ever worked for that actually had retail distribution at Walmart and Target and Costco. And I was like, oh, these are real numbers. And here's the whole omni-channel flow. And, you know, both them and the Warby guys have had people at those companies since they started. And I think that's such a testament to the cultures that they've built. I mean, I remember even just being a consultant and they had me do like the DISC personality analysis because they cared that much about me integrating with the team. And I think most companies don't do that, especially startup companies. So that was really special. And, you know, working with Ty and Outdoor Voices too. And when they're moved to Texas and building that influencer ambassador program, like, man, she's a visionary too. But so many learnings of like the reality of a category like that. I was even just reading this morning. I can't remember where, which either means I'm tired or I don't know what that says about me, but about 
you know, aloe feels really big. By the way, 200 million in revenue a year is amazing and it should be celebrated. But we left it at 8 billion and they have 500 stores. And you kind of get disillusioned of something that feels big online might not actually be big. And I always say this, it's like as many businesses as there are, there are as many ways to run a business. Something could look really sexy and cool from the outside, but you have no idea what's going on under the hood. And like, I also worked with a a brand called Mason, the menswear brand. Eric and Sasha are two of my closest friends. They've been building that company. It'll be 10 years this year. You know, it was the same generation as Everlane, Warby, Untuck It. They didn't take, they took on a little bit of capital. We actually have one of the same investors, but nominal, like nothing for like retail expansion compared to a lot of these brands. And they're absolutely crushing it. Like they secretly have just taken every single male customer from J. Crew over the last few years, you know, and and all of these companies and their approach to low and slow. And I actually hired someone from their team too. Like, honestly, I'm so grateful that I've been able to learn on other people's time and be in the trenches. And I have to be honest with you, I have no idea how other founders are doing this if they haven't already done it. It is so hard. And if you haven't been in the trenches, like building these things, you're going to make a lot of mistakes. So the fact that I've learned off of other people and, you know, I'm sure, I mean, we've made a ton of mistakes in terms of the pandemic and decisions around inventory, but man, you just got to wake up every day and be nimble and resilient. I feel like that's the one takeaway. The second that you're nostalgic or get too comfortable is when you're not going to continue to evolve. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) those are some amazing. That was a lot. Sorry. That was a lot. (laughs) I was just taking it all in. I mean, you've worked at and with some of these, honestly, at this point, legendary founders and brands in this space. First of all, what are the different roles that you had? So you were head of partnerships at Away. And then what can you share as far as tactical advice about, let's say, building amazing partnerships, which I know you've been doing with Crown Affair and anything else that might be kind of tactically helpful for some of the emerging founders who are listening? Yeah. So I have been marketing, enter the blank, associate, coordinator, manager, senior manager, director. So I've been in marketing since I started. For the record, I had no idea. I thought marketing was like mad men. You know, like I didn't know what marketing was. I went to college for art history. I was an art history major and an Italian minor, much to my dad's dismay. Um, going to NYU, he's like, what are you going to do with this? But I do think art history is so, I mean, it's so deeply rooted in storytelling. And I've shared this a few times, but I don't talk about it enough. I did take a marketing class at Stern. It wasn't like a minor or anything, but I took a class. I had a professor named Professor Mark Cohen and he had his friend, this guy, Gary V, come in in 2010, pre the Gary V that we know now, building the wine visit business for his parents. He did like two or three classes. Once One was like in the more intimate classroom at Stern downstairs and the other one was in an auditorium. And I hate to admit it, but Gary Vee was the first time that I was like, I want to be a marketer. <laughs> I want to do what this guy is doing. Like he was telling me about converting the sign up list at the wine shop to email. And I was like, that's what I want to do. I didn't know that that was marketing. You know, that changed my life. And I really thought I wanted to work in fashion. And I am so grateful that I ended up being in the e-commerce space. And my last internship was at Into the Gloss and just continuing with them. And then, you know, I met Era um, at an event that I did. I used to intern for this jewelry company called Giles and Brother, which was like a really big jewelry company in like the 2010s, kind of early CFDA-ish. And they did a partnership with your company, Beach Mint, which was like Style Mint with Ashley and Mary Kate and Jewel Mint with Kate Bosworth. I was working at Into the Gloss. They did a party. My old bosses invited me and Era was there. And that's how I met Era. And it was at Acme, which is always so funny because I know people meet at Acme in New York romantically. But I met Era downstairs at Acme. She doesn't drink. I wasn't drinking that night. 
we like sat in a booth and talked for like three hours. And she was like, I was 21. She was like, I'm going to hire you one day. And I was like, okay, cool. You like live in Venice in LA. You like work for this amazing company. You're like, I will never see you. And then so funny, but I think I had like a hundred connections on LinkedIn. I was in college and I like went on LinkedIn and accidentally emailed everyone that was in my email list that I was on LinkedIn. Like, you know, when you're supposed to click like skip and it accidentally emailed everybody in your contact list, it emailed Era that I had like graduated and I was into, you know, and she was like, what are you doing? I'm coming to New York. Let's meet. And that was it. And I met her at Toby's estate. I don't even know if Toby's estate is still there, but it was in the Club Monaco in Flatiron and met her at 830 in the morning. She was then like, come into this office. You're going to meet the co-founders of the company. Like that whole day, I was just in interviews, like the whole day. And then she would let me start on my day. Role was marketing, whatever. Associate coordinator didn't matter. It was just like, do anything for ERA, you know, and like do it all and launch this business. And I always say to people, I think who you work for, especially in your first job, is without a doubt the most important thing in your entire life because you're going to learn everything from them and they're going to be the people that train you. And most people have no idea what spring is unless you were in like D2C e-commerce in 2012, 2013, 2014. But it's not about the company. And I, I say this, it's all about who you're working for and the company might do well or not. But you know, just did everything. And relationships are the most important thing if you're a marketer. Like that is all that matters is your relationships. And that obviously folded into doing partnerships and how you connect with people, how you think about people, just always keeping people in mind. I love it. It's what I get enthusiastic about. So if anybody's listening and is like, I also love just like getting coffee and connecting. And my friends always make fun of me. But when I meet with people, I'll like take out a little notebook, you know, because I, I feel like there's so much to learn from everyone. So that's how I got in it. Just be the most graceful team member you can. I think it's really hard. I'm definitely a little bit of a rebel and I'm very open about that. But just learn everything you can. And the truth is, is I realized the other day that I get asked all the time about like paid marketing and growth marketing. And I'm like, I don't know anything. I've been adjacent to it. I've sat next to those teams, but I've always been a brand marketer. I realize now as we actually divide up our team that I am a brand person, like it's brand and then there's marketing. So I think that language has evolved a little bit. And just to kind of tie a bow on that, it was really funny. I was with our whole team last week in New York for our third birthday pop-up. And I was sitting in the room and we're all women except for one guy. We have 15 full-time team members, David, our warehouse manager, but everyone else is, is an amazing woman. And I really do feel like I'm a different leader because I can say with absolute certainty that I have been every single person in that room, every single person. I know what it's like to want to ask for a promotion. I know what it's like to ask for more equity. I know what it's like to ask for vacation days. I know what it's like to feel X, Y, Z or have performed. Like, I feel like I'm a very different leader because I've been all of them. And something I think about a lot as a leader is like, how do I get to that next stage of being a leader? Like the year one to year four, I know really well. And how do I continue to hire and surround myself with people who have taken businesses from 10 million to 30 million, which is not something I've done, you know? So what are some ways that you have become a better leader over the last two years since launching Crown Affair? I'm so grateful for my president, Elaine, because she really allows me to lift my head up and focus on the things that move the needle and where my superpowers are. It's hard letting go. I'm definitely not naturally a skilled delegator. Like that's something that I've had to take a lot of time to learn. I find that it's been really interesting growing as a leader in parallel with just getting older. Like sometimes I don't know the difference between is it leadership growth? Is it my age? 
Is it the pandemic? Like, how, what are these things that have changed me? Like, I don't really know if any of them are the cause specifically if, or if it's an amalgamation of all of them. And I see it reflected in my relationship. I mean, this is the 10th year that I've been with my husband. We've been married for almost two years now. And it's always interesting having him as like a marker because he knows me and has seen me the last 10 years. So I would say overall, as I just get older, you know, as you're in your 30s, you just start getting a little bit nicer to yourself. And I think that's been reflected in my leadership. And I think I realized that when I have maybe wanted to react to something, it's actually my own project projection of something that I'm not about with myself. So you just learn those triggers and you learn how to stop them. And I feel like a lot of the leaders that I worked for before maybe didn't have the opportunity in the space to not project those things on their team. And culture is the most important thing and people are the most important thing. And it takes a lot of work. So so many learnings from the last few years. Have you read Reboot by Jerry Colonna? I haven't, but I absolutely should. That yeah. should work. I mean, it's exactly about this. He's one of those people. I sort of like put him in the same camp as like Naval Ravikant, where he's just this Zen, mindful, wise master who happens to be in tech in Silicon Valley, helping other founders and tech people learn how to be more mindful and more rooted and, and act from that place. And I'm actually going to have him on the podcast next week, but he's legendary. I know. I'm so excited. He's coming out with a new book and everything. So yeah, I definitely recommend Reboot. I can add it to the show notes. I remember. <laughs> yeah. No, add it to the show notes because I, I will order it. There's a book that I read. My coach actually recommended to me. It's like a super tiny book in like 12 lessons called Visionary Business. I think so much of business, and it goes back to that masculine energy, it comes from a place of scarcity. And it fuels you, it motivates you, but it is that mind shift towards abundance. And I think when you fully wake up every day and you're like, okay, abundance, abundance, there's room for everyone. Like you're able to not be so splashy and reactive and jittery because you just feel genuinely that you don't have to act that way because you're not coming from a place of fear. So that, that book's been really helpful for me in terms of thinking about slower growth. Again, like the analogy towards taking care of like a tree and seeing how something grows over time. So I'm always open to reading more things like that because it's such a nice reminder that there is a different way to do this. Mm -hmm. And it just takes a lot of unlearning and visual cues. I mean, I've posted notes all over my computer that are like, take your time. I mean, I take your time everywhere in my life, but little reminders, you know, every day I wake up and I journal and I, I just remind myself about abundance because I think especially as women too, we're like trained to be very competitive with each other and compare ourselves and social media is not helpful. And again, do not get me wrong. I am not cured and above all of this stuff, but I think the work that I've done has allowed me to recognize when I start to feel that way and do the best that I can to not let those triggers get me into a spiral. That's so powerful. I mean, just recognizing it, acknowledging it and seeing it, I think is half the battle because when you're not seeing the patterns, you're just hijacked by them and you're just operating from that place. And I personally believe that whatever you put out into the world, whether it's you know, a hair care product or a piece of content, in my case, yeah. the place that it's coming from is what you're kind of subtly adding more of to the world, you know? Yes. That energy is felt, by the way. And I see it like I love community, like influencers and community. It's only one of my favorite parts of my job. And I mean, I know these girls, I'll get coffees with them. You can tell when people are tired, like it's a grind. And I think that the audience, again, it goes back to that quality over quantity. And I know that we live in a world where quantity, we're kind of trying to beat the algorithm. But the sooner you swallow the pill that like our software is not as up to date as the software, like and you come from a place of intention, like it's slower. It is slower. And I think that's one of the challenges with Crown Affair and the beauty space is like 
I'm so proud of it because it's such a layered brand. And I know that our customers, especially our direct customers, see all those layers and all those Easter eggs and all those moments and come to the product in such a different way. And there are moments where I'm like, oh, we should just do obvious things. And like, especially in competitive retail environments where it feels like you're being yelled at all of the time by every brand. But I always like the analogy of like a TV show where you can make like a primetime TV show that goes on at, you know, 8 p.m. on ABC and there's a laugh track and a lot of people like it at once because of the distribution and it's very obvious. But it doesn't actually assume that the audience is smart and clever. Or you could have shows like Arrested Development or The Office or even Seinfeld that did not work the first few seasons and were almost taken off the air because they assumed that the audience was smart and got it and didn't spell it out for them. Those are the shows that people rewatch on Netflix 10 years later, you know. So my intention is to build something that's more like that than you know, the laugh track 8 p.m. show on a big network that might be really fun as a thing right now. But the reality is, is it doesn't change the way you feel about yourself or it doesn't build a community in a deeper way. So trying to build something that is the latter. It's funny because so much of what you're saying resonates with me as a creator because I've been on how do I just focus on quality? And sometimes I get caught up in the rat race of I have to beat the algorithm. I'm like paying attention to people who are copying my content or whatever. And then I'm like, yeah. yeah. And then I have to chuckle and be like, is it actually about that? Like, why did I go into this in the first place, right? It's not about the number. It's not about the views. And coming back to that place of actually the quality is the thing that brings me more meaning anyway. It's like Barbara with you, right? Like that yes. is priceless. Like, I'm sure that when you had that interaction with her, you were like, wait, this is what it's all about. And I just have to like come back to that. So I think it's this universal thing where we're all trying to figure out, wait, the way that capitalism basically incentivizes us to work is kind of broken and kind of unnatural. And it's kind of not standard to try to find a new blueprint. But if we want to maintain our sanity and bring more mindfulness into the world with what we create, then we kind of have to figure out that way. I couldn't agree more. And by the way, it's so hard. Like I know the feeling of when someone copies your content or copies your brand, like it's soul crushing. (laughs) I'm also not above it. And I have seen other founders I've worked for like call people out. And it's usually not the right answer. So I try to be a founder that's like, it's harder when it's bigger brands that do it because they just inherently have more reach. And I'm sure it's the same. But I always think to myself, like with with Barbara and our community, it's like if someone was like, Diana, got to shut down Crown Affair tomorrow, I'd obviously be really devastated. But I'm also like, it's been the journey. Like it's those relationships. It's those connections. It's talking to you right now. Like neither of us would have this opportunity to connect if we weren't doing what we're doing. And we're both going to do different things later in our life, you know, and I think it's keeping that perspective that this is like a part of the journey. And you have to remember that like doing the thing that you enjoy doing is the actual accomplishment. So it's not the end goal. And like 10 years from now, I mean, we'll both see what we're up to. And the fact that this is the thing that brought us together is what is powerful. So it's finding balance. And with the algorithm, I think it's like, jump on it. I mean, my team will be like, this sounds trending, go do a thing. And, you know, I know my limits. Like I'm, I don't do dancing. I don't do lip syncing. It doesn't feel right to me. For some people, that's amazing. And you do you. And I, I enjoy it. <laughs> yeah, there will be no lip syncing or dancing for me, but that's my personal choice. And you just kind of do what's authentic to you. Yeah, that's where I draw the line. But it is hard. And I'm so grateful for friendships like this and having connections like this, because I do feel like there's a little bit of like head nod, founder, creator, like alignment when you see somebody who you know is aligned and how you're making content. But you're also like, damn, we're in this machine, you know? So I know when I see your content that you get in. And I think it's just something we inherently all need to acknowledge as 
founders, creators that like, this is not unique. We all feel it. And some of us share it. Some of us don't. If we don't share it, you still know that that person's going through it, you know? Wow. And I feel like that's a beautiful note to end on. I'll ask one more question, which is what is inspiring you lately? Art is always the answer for me. (laughs) There's always something in art that I'm really inspired by. I would say the biggest inspiration for me from the last like six months has been Jim Henson, who started the Muppets and from Fraggle Rock and Sesame Street. (laughs) I'm like really into him. I recently read his biography. I finished it end of last year. And I actually met somebody last night who gave me a mood ring. I loved her mood ring. And she was like, wait, I have another. Let me get it for you. And I was like, oh, and we were talking about being, I think there's this generation of elder millennials that's very into like specific things, as you know. And For us, one of them was just like kind of magical color changing things, whether it was like your sneakers that had gel in them or mood rings or like Alex Mack. And I feel like Jim Henson, I went to end of last year when I was in San Francisco for Sephora, the Jewish museum had like the most incredible exhibition of his work and the puppets. And they had all of like the costumes from the Dark Crystal and Labyrinth with David Bowie and like Jennifer Connelly's like dress. And like, I just keep coming back to him and him as a creator and him as a leader. and. It's been interesting, too. There's more stuff with like a Steven Spielberg film that just came out. I don't know if you saw The Fablemans. It was so good. I was listening to a podcast on um, Smartless with the Jason Bateman, Will Arnett, Sean Hayes podcast. Oh, it's so good. It's like a more playful version of Armchair Expert with Dax Shepard. But they had Steven Spielberg on and just listening to him talk about his relationships with his peers. So for us, that might be other founders and creators. For them, it's George Lucas and, you know, (laughs) Coppola and all of them, but how they would like critique each other's films and all watch them together. And, you know, Jim tragically died really before technology became what it was. He had like a fluke health situation. But I think about how he created a universe and the time that he took and He's just one of the most inspiring people to me. And much to my husband's dismay, I keep buying objects that are like whimsical and crazy. And he's like, you need to stop buying crazy whimsical things. But it just brings me so much joy. And I think that part of the visual literacy with the minimalism and Japanese inspiration. And like maybe a year ago, if you asked me this question, I would have been like, wow, I'm really inspired by this Japanese artist right now. And like the focus of this thing. And for some reason, I'm leaning a little bit more into whimsy right now. So it has been a huge part of that playfulness. I just want to step into an offline universe that you create. Like what would a Diana Cohen like exhibit or pop up or just like walking into your brain, your creative brain? That's what I want. Elaine will let me do this, but my dream, and it will probably never happen. The joking dream is that there's like a little Lord of the Rings wall hill that you like walk into and it's like this whole universe beyond it. She won't let me do that. She's like, nobody wants that, Diana. Um, But... (laughs) My more tactical one is I would love to create like a labyrinth experience. And Sephora is an amazing partner. I love all of our pop-up partners that were, you know, having our own space. But I definitely dream of the ASOP of it all and creating a space that our customers and community can come to and have a little crowd affair journey. I definitely have a number of ideas. So stay tuned. I think it'll be year five that this all happens because... As a founder, you need to prioritize cash flow, but my team keeps me grounded and it's like, we got to find a balance. So I'll back channel campaign Elaine for this. <laughs> please do campaign Elaine. Get her to say yes, please. And thank you. This is epic. Diana, this was so beautiful and just nourishing and inspiring. So thank you for showing up, being yourself, creating your art in the world through your brand. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you for creating this space. I genuinely am such a fan of you. 
how you communicate with everyone you talk to. I am just cheering you on. Every time I see someone cool, exciting, I'm like, oh, she's doing it. And it makes me so happy. So thank you for your time today. And thank you for creating this space for someone who has been craving content like this and was never going to do it on my own. So I'm just grateful that you and your brain exist. So thank oh, you. Well, thank you.